0: The following message was recorded during the Friends of Israel 2010 National Prophecy Conference season. These meetings were held in Winona Lake, Indiana and Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For other audio resources from the Friends of Israel, visit us at FOI.org. Now tonight, as we talk about the five facets of uh, God's Kingdom program, the first facet is what we call the universal or eternal kingdom from Psalm 90 and quite another uh, number of other scriptures but uh, this facet of God's program kingdom program emphasizes God ruling over his creation and it is interesting to see that throughout scripture there is this emphasis on God's creation the fact that God created this world And even as we get to the book of Revelation in the end times, in the tribulation period, John says, I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth. And to every nation, kindred, and tongue, people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven and earth, the sea and the fountains of water. So, This gospel that the angel is preaching, the gospel the good news was, was the creation. The emphasis on the creation that God is the one who created. In um, Acts chapter 14, as uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, interesting to see him on his different missionary journeys, and... uh, what is amazing is that as Paul has a Jewish audience and he's talking to his own people, they believed in creation. They had the Torah. They knew the creation story. And Paul does not start talking about creation with them. But when he goes and he preaches to the Goyim, the nations, the Gentiles, they didn't believe in creation. They, most of them believed in all these Greek gods and Zeus you know, made everything. And so Paul starts with creation in Acts 4 uh 1415. He says, We preach unto you you should turn from these vanities unto the living God which made heaven and earth sea and all things that are therein. So his emphasis is that he lays this foundation of creation. And I wonder if here in America, as we are kind of living in a post-Christian era, if maybe we need to have more of an emphasis on creation and the fact that God created as we're sharing the gospel and, and preaching the gospel. Romans 1 20, the Apostle Paul says, The invisible things of him from the creation of creation of the world are clearly seen, be understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. Now, Second Peter three brings out the fact that in the end times, in the last days, there will be an attack on creation, the doctrine of creation, the, the preaching and teaching uh, the fact that God created this world, Second Peter three, three through six. You know this first, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, "Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of the water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Now, three things I want to bring out from this passage is that uh, in the last days there comes people mocking and they are following their own lusts. Now, have any of you seen this sign on a bus I've seen them on uh, some buses around Chicago. There's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy life. This, uh, is, these are signs that are being paid for by an, an atheist group. And um, it's kind of interesting, some of these atheists, uh, they're not content to just sit back and be atheists. Uh, they're becoming very aggressive, and it's kind of like they're out to convert the world to atheism now. And so they're putting these signs. I know they have have some of them on uh, buses over in um, London. I've seen them in Chicago. I think there's in other cities uh, uh, throughout the world. There's probably no God. Stop worrying and enjoy life. So, translation, since there is probably no God, then you're not going to have to stand in judgment before God someday. So, you don't have to worry. Live your life the way you want. In other words, follow your own lusts, like he says in Second Peter. Uh, you want to do drugs? Fine, go out and do it. You want to sleep around? Enjoy. You want to run up the credit card? No problem. You, you know, when this life is over, that's it. You're done. You're not going to have to stand before God. And so they're following their own lusts. And then Peter says that they will say that all things continue just as it was. Now, that is known today as the philosophy of uniformitarianism, and say that fast ten times, but... This assumes that the same natural laws and processes that operate in the universe now have always operated in the universe in the past and apply everywhere in the universe. All things have always been the same, all right? In other words, God has not intervened in the past. Things have always been the same. And this uh, modern uniformitarianism was uh, formulated by Scottish naturalists in the late 18th century. And by the way, evolution is based on this philosophy that things have always been the same, nothing has ever changed, God did not intervene in history, he did not you know, create, and there was no flood uh, in the past. And then that's the third thing I would bring out from this, is that they deny the flood. They deny that there ever was a flood. You know, the Noah's Ark, that whole story, to them it's just a fairy tale. It never really happened. And so as uh, evolutionists and people who do not believe in the Word of God, as they look at the Grand Canyon, and they'll see a river running through the Grand Canyon, since they don't believe in the flood, They assume that it would take millions and millions of years for this river to carve out this huge canyon. Well, if there was no such thing as Noah's flood, I would tend to agree with them. But when we understand that there was Noah's flood about 5,000 years ago and this canyon was not carved out by this river, this was a result of Noah's flood. And this canyon would have been formed in a matter of months, perhaps even weeks and we really have a good example of this uh, out with the Mount St. Helens explosion. How many of you have seen uh, the Mount St. Helens uh, video that uh, yeah, okay, a lot of you have seen that. Uh, I think that was put out by Institute of Creation Research where they show that uh, after Mount St. Hel- Helens erupted, uh, a canyon was formed, a pretty good size canyon. I mean a small one, but a fairly good size. And there's a river Uh, running through there. Now, if you were to go there today and you didn't know any better and you were an evolutionist, you would look at that and say, well, it would have taken millions of years for this river to form out, uh, you know, this this canyon. But we know that canyon, folks, was formed in a matter of days, even hours after the eruption at Mount St. Helens. But they deny creation, they deny the flood. And what they're doing, really, is cutting out the whole foundations of Scripture. This slide comes courtesy of uh, Answers in Genesis. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? And let's face it, if the first two chapters of this book are not reliable, if the first two chapters are just a fairy tale, Well, who's to say that anything else in this book is accurate or reliable? And what it really comes down to is to your hermeneutic and how you interpret the Bible. What's very disturbing to me today is to see a lot of good Christians, and I mean good evangelical Christians, who are kind of buying into this whole evolution garbage, and saying that the days of creation, well, they weren't really 24-hour days. They were, you know, long ages or periods of time, and that could allow for evolution, and maybe God used evolution. And, in fact, there are some Christians who believe that, uh, you know, I mean, evolutionists have done such a good job of brainwashing everybody and and uh, telling everybody that all the fossils only fit the, creator, the evolution point of view. There are some Christians who believe that, God made these fossils and put them in there just to test our faith. <laughs> well, when you <laughs> understand the, the Genesis Flood, and, and probably a lot of you have read that uh, book by Dr. Henry Morris, The, the Genesis Flood, and then uh, showing how uh, these fossils really, when you take into account the Flood, they actually support creation and not evolution So it comes down to how we interpret the Bible. Do we take the Bible literally? Now, we at Friends of Israel, we take this book literally, and when it comes to the story of creation, we take that literally. And when God said he created in six days, we take that to be literal six days. Now, I understand that a day, you know, day of the Lord, that can be a long period of time, but in Genesis You don't really have days. It says morning and evening were day one. Morning, evening, day two. And anywhere in Scripture, folks, anywhere that combination, that pattern is used, morning, evening, it is always, without exception, referring to a 24-hour period. And so, if we take the Bible literally, we're talking about a literal creation uh, also interesting to me is that the people at Answers in Genesis, Institute Creation Research, the, these great Christian organizations, they take the Bible, the creation story, literally. We have Friends of Israel. We take that literally. Uh, when you get into the end times scriptures... The Institute of Creation Research, Answer Genesis—they take that literally as well, and they have pretty much the same view about the end times as we do, and we have the same view of creation as they do, and so it all comes down really to your to your hermeneutic, and do you take the Bible literally? Because if you do not take the creation literally, well, what about the rest of the the Bible? Did uh, Did Moses really part the waters? Did that literally happen? Or is that just a story too? Did Joshua make the sun stand still? Was Jesus really born of a virgin? And the most important, did Jesus really arise from the dead? That is the whole foundation of our faith right there. And if you're going to say then that, you know, creation, oh, we've got to spiritualize and allegorize all that, well, where do you stop? And before you know it, uh, you're then throwing out a good portion of the Bible, and before you know it, you're even denying the creation. Now, one of my favorite examples of this, of really taking what God says literally, is in 2 Kings chapter 7. One of my favorite stories uh, in the Old Testament and this is the story, I'll refresh your memory, of where um, Samaria, the northern kingdom, they are surrounded by this army, and the famine in the city of Samaria becomes so severe. And Elijah is the prophet, and he says, Listen to the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord... Tomorrow, about this time, a measure of fine flour will be sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. Now understand that in the previous chapter, in 2 Kings chapter 6, he brings out that a donkey's head is selling in the market for 80 shekels. 80 shekels for a donkey's head. And I don't even think it's a democratic donkey head. You know, it's just a regular, ordinary, run of the mill donkey head. I mean, can you imagine going up here to Owen Grocery Store, and you go back to the meat department, and that's all they have lined up in the freezers are donkey heads. You know, you get the flyer in the mail, and you're thumbing through, and it's just pictures of donkey heads everywhere, you know? I mean, that's how severe the famine was. And Elijah says, tomorrow about this time, there's going to be food, there's going to be bread, and it's not going to be expensive. It's not going to be 80 shekels. He says it's going to be one shekel. Now, there was one guy who just could not, it was just too much for him. Come on, Elijah, get real. An officer, on whose hand the king was leaning, answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? Come on, Elijah, don't you realize how long it takes grain to grow? If the windows of heaven opened up and God sent rain on this planet, man, it's going to take weeks and, and months for grain to grow and for us to harvest that grain so we can have fine flour for bread. How can that happen in one day? And Elijah says to him, you're going to see it with your own eyes, but you won't eat of it. Do you know the story? <laughs> it is such a great story. And... Uh, The Lord caused the army surrounding Samaria, they heard this thundering, and they thought that the Israelis had hired the Egyptians to come attack them, and so they took off running. And the Israelites, they found out about it, and so they went out and they plundered the tents. And when they did that, a measure of flour was sold for a shekel, two measures of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Now it says in the end of the chapter, the king appointed the royal officer, that guy who who scoffed, he doubted, the king appointed him to have charge of the gate, but the people trampled on him at the gate, and he died just as the man of God, just as Elijah had said. It happened just as the man of God had spoken to the king, saying, two measures of barley for a shekel a measure of fine flour for a shekel will be sold tomorrow about this time at the gate of Samaria. The royal officer answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? He said, Behold, you'll see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled on him at the gate, and he died. <clears throat> now, folks, there's some pretty unbelievable things in the Word of God. But I want you to know, if God says it, you better believe it. Amen? Now, I got thinking, what are some. In time events that we talk about and you think, man, if the Lord, could that really be? If if God opened the windows of heaven, could that really happen? Well, think about it. How about the rebirth of Israel? You know, it wasn't long ago, people scoffed. You know, C.I. Schofield, he wrote his notes. And he said, if we are to take the Bible literally, we would expect to see the rebirth of the modern state of Israel. Good Christians scoffed at him. Are you crazy, C.I. Schofield? That'll never happen. It happened. 1948. And folks, do you realize what a miracle that is? The rebirth of Israel? It has never happened before in the history of the world. For a group of people to be scattered, driven from their homeland, wander around for hundreds, even thousands thousands of years, and return, and to speak the same language. Hebrew was a dead language, and they revived it. Hebrew is the only language in the history of the world to be revived, and it's happened. How about a Russian invasion of Israel, and Israel wins? It's going to happen. It might sound hard to believe, but it is going to happen. How about the rebuilding of the temple? I was in a church a few years ago, a good evangelical church, and the pastor scoffed. He was preaching on this, and he just, oh, rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. That's never going to happen. How about the 144,000 Jewish evangelists all around the world? Uh, how about every eye shall see the dead bodies of the two witnesses there in Revelation 11? I can imagine when John wrote that, he might have had a few people, you know, saying to say unto him, boy, if the Lord opened the windows of heaven, could that happen? But now we... Satellite TV, that's, you know, we all we look at that and say, oh, yeah, that's no problem. How about Mar- 666, the mark of the beast? I heard recently that the UN has a plan to have everyone in the world chipped by the year 2017. That's just seven years out. Maybe the trip will start this year. Wouldn't that be cool? Because we'd be raptured out, Amen. And then, oh, now this one, this last one, this is hard for even some dispensationalists. I have some good dispensationalists friends. They, they have a hard time on this one. The rise of Babylon. Boy, even if God opened the windows of heaven, could that happen? i like to show this picture. This is the palace that Saddam Hussein built over the ancient ruins of Babylon. And in Revelation 18, he sees Babylon fall at the end of the tribulation. For Babylon to fall... It has to rise. And so we would expect the rise of Babylon in the end times, and Babylon will be the economic center of the world. If the Lord opened the windows of heaven, could that happen? Yeah, it could. God says it's going to happen. I take the Bible literally. You know, when I went, first went to Bible school, Word of Life Bible Institute, Tennessee Temple, we were taught that Babylon there was code for Rome until Dr. Dyer's book came out, early 1990s, The Rise of Babylon. And Dr. Dyer, who's now at Moody, graduated from Dallas, now teaches at Moody. And he said, hey, we need to rethink this. It's always best to take the Bible literally. And the Jews went into captivity to Babylon. Rebellion, know, oh, the first rebellion against God, really, you know, was Babylon, the Tower of Babel, It's it's Babylon. And Folks, I you know don't look for Babylon. I don't think that necessarily means that the city of Babylon has to be some huge humongous city, because uh what is Wall Street right now, where every th- all this stuff is traded? you know uh John talks there in um revelation Revelation eighteen, gold, silver, precious stones, all the the merchants of the wee earth weep and mourn of them, those stuff's not traded anymore. And he's, he indicates that Babylon is going to be like the Wall Street of the Middle East. Well, the Wall Street today, New York City, all of this stuff is traded, but it's traded electronically. Now, I went a few weeks ago on a tour uh, down, I live north of Chicago, and I went down to Chicago Board of Trade. I always wanted to go on a tour down there, and I finally got the opportunity just a few weeks ago. And it was uh, really just fascinating. But one thing that was, was uh, really interesting about the Chicago Board of Trade is how quiet it was. Now, you've probably seen them on the stock market out in New York City. When that opens, you know, they're always oh, shouting and waving their hands. And they told us, you know, if they're, they're waving their hands toward them, they're buying. If they push them away, they're, they're selling. And all of this stuff is traded electronically. But, you know, in- interesting on the Chicago Board of Trade they showed us a huge trading floor, and there, there's a number of trading floors down there, but most of them now are very small. There might be 8, 10 people. The biggest one we saw was maybe 40, 50 people on. But there were a couple of trading floors that were probably twice the size of this platform, completely empty. They had huge, huge screens all around this trading floor, completely blank. And they said, these trading floors used to be filled. I mean, people screaming and shouting and trading. Where'd they all go? Guess where they are? They're at home trading on their computers. And I said to one of the the traders down there, this guy's been trading stocks on the Chicago Board trade for 30 years. He's not a believer. I was trying to witness to him. And I said, did you know that there is a prophecy in the Bible that, said, that indicates that in the end times, the economic center in like Wall Street, is going to move to the Middle East. You know what he said? He said, "Well, that's kind of the way things are going, aren't they? He kind of agreed. <laughs> so uh, boy, we, that was kind of a rabbit trail, wasn't it? From the creation to Babylon. Well, when you drink Chicago water, that'll do the you know, tricks on your mind, but uh, the first facet of God's kingdom. Uh, the creation. The second facet of uh, God's kingdom program is the spiritual kingdom. Now, our amillennial brothers they love to talk about the spiritual kingdom, and according to them, that's all there is is a spiritual kingdom. And uh, we, dispensationalists, we love to talk about the messianic kingdom. And some of us we might get a little nervous talking about the spiritual kingdom. But this is definitely one of the facets of God's five facets of God's kingdom program. Jesus said in Matthew six thirty three, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, all these things shall be added unto you. I take that to be talking about the spiritual kingdom. Now the the spiritual kingdom is made up of all believers from all ages, beginning at the first believer in the Old Testament all the way through till the end of the millennium. All believers in all ages, you and I, every believer here, we are part of the spiritual kingdom. And I take it that when you lead a person to Christ, you're building up, the, I think you could say it, you're building up the kingdom, you're, but you're building up the spiritual kingdom, not the messianic kingdom. Now, these two passages seem contradictory until we understand the different facets of God's kingdom program. In Mark 9.1, Jesus said to some of his disciples that there would be some uh, there who shall not taste death, till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. So Jesus said, you are going to see the kingdom come. In Luke 17, he says, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation, neither shall they say, lo here or lo there. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So in the one passage, he says, you're going to see the kingdom coming. In the other passage, he says, you can't see the kingdom coming. You won't see it. You, you cannot see the kingdom coming. Those are completely contradictory until we understand the different facets of God's kingdom program. One, he's talking about the messianic kingdom in Mark 9 and in Luke 17. I take it he's talking about the spiritual facet of God's kingdom uh, that we're all a part of. Now, the third facet of God's kingdom program is the theocratic kingdom, and that is God ruling and reigning uh, over the nation of Israel. Israel. And uh, that is all I'm going to have time uh, really to say about that. And then the fourth facet is the Messianic or Millennial Kingdom. And that, of course, is the time when Jesus returns. He's going to rule and reign. He sets up his kingdom here on earth for 1,000 years. Revelation chapter 20. The mountain of the Lord will be high... And lift it up. Now, I have a picture here, and the dimensions are given in Ezekiel chapter 40 to 48 that the mountain of the Lord is approximately 50 miles by 50 miles square. And this will be the highest mountain in the world during the millennial reign of Christ. And this picture is approximately of where it would be placed uh, in the land of Israel. There will be a river that flows out of the temple and half of it will flow toward the Dead Sea and half of it toward the Mediterranean, according to Zechariah 14.8 and Ezekiel 47.10. And the Ezekiel passage, Ezekiel 47.10, tells us that the water that flows out of the temple that goes down to the Dead Sea will heal the waters of the Dead Sea and so that there will be fish to live again in the Dead Sea. Now, the Dead Sea, you've been there, it's, uh, it is ten times saltier than the ocean. It is so salty, nothing can live in it. That's why they call it the Dead Sea. But uh, Ezekiel says that in the millennial, millennial reign of Christ, they're going to be fishing on the shores of the, of the, of the Dead Sea. It could be another one of those, uh, could that really happen? The Bible says it's going to happen. Now, I lived in Israel for three years, and back in the 80s, I can tell you that the Israelis had a plan to dig a canal from the Mediterranean down to the Dead Sea because the Dead Sea is running out of of water. And I always thought, you know what? Just wait a little while, all right? God's going to solve that problem for you. And then um, the lifespan will be increased. In fact, turn with me in your Bible, if you have your Bible, turn with me to, to Isaiah chapter 65. Because this is my favorite passage on the millennial reign of Christ. In Isaiah 65, 20, he says, There will be no more in it infant of days, nor old man that hath not filled his days. So what he's saying there is, There will be no infant mortality. How many what little babies do we have that die now? It's millions, isn't it? During the millennial reign of Christ, there will be no infant mortality. No, no babies, as they come out, are going to die after a day or two or three or a week or a month. They're going to live to at least 100 years of age. The child shall die in 100 years old. The sinner, being 100 years old, shall be accursed. Now, I take that to mean that during the millennial reign of Christ, you will have 100 years to come to faith in Christ. If after that 100 years you do not come to faith, you will die. Verse 21, there will be prosperity. They will build houses and inhabit them, plant vineyards and eat them. Verse 22, there's longevity. They shall not build in another habit. They shall uh, not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree are the days of my people. And verse 23, there is security. They will not labor in vain nor bring forth for trouble. Uh, can you imagine today if there was no need of hospitals, armies, or police officers? How much money we would save? How much more prosperous our country would be if we didn't have to spend money on those things? That's the way it's going to be during the millennial Millennial reign of Christ. There's going to be answered prayer, verse 24. Shall come to pass before they call, I will answer. While they're yet speaking, I will hear. A lot of times we like to quote that verse today, but that verse in a context is really talking about Prayer during the millennial reign of Christ. And the wolf and lamb feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the bullock. Dust shall be the serpent's food. And so the whole animal kingdom is transformed back to the way it was before the fall, where they're not killing each other, hunting each other down. And so the mountain of the Lord is 50 miles by 50 miles. There is a river flowing out of the temple. Half of it flows toward the Dead Sea, half toward the Mediterranean. And then the city of Jerusalem sits on top of the mountain of the Lord, which is the mountain of the Lord. Again, 50 miles by 50 miles. And the city of Jerusalem, I believe it was 10 miles by 10 miles. And then you have areas up on the mountain where uh, there is for growing food. And then areas for the priests and Levites to live. And so the whole top of the mountain is, is self contained. It's self sufficient. And the desert blossoms like a rose, Isaiah 35 1. The Feast of Tabernacles will be kept throughout the millennium, Zechariah 14. There is no war, according to Micah 4 3. And what a day, uh, what a time that will be. As Jesus rules and reigns for a thousand years. So that is the fourth facet of God's kingdom. And then the fifth and final facet, and the one I would like to talk about uh, for the rest of tomorrow night, is called the mystery kingdom. And this is really, I think, one of the most interesting things. But if you like a good mystery, I invite you to come on back tomorrow night, and we'll finish up tomorrow with the fifth facet of God's kingdom the mystery kingdom.